Welcome back to The Foreign Desk. I'm Lisa Deftari. Today we have with us a repeat guest that I love repeating because he is my go-to for all things foreign policy, particularly when it comes to the Middle East. He is a soul brother and really one of my favorite people to have these conversations with. Welcome to the show, Dr. Walid Ferris. He's internationally recognized as an analyst, as an author, called upon by the majority of news outlets to shed light on foreign policy topics. Dr. Ferris is also the co-secretary of the Transatlantic Parliamentary Group, former foreign policy advisor to Donald Trump, author of several books. My shelves are filled with his books, uh, Future Jihad, The War of Ideas, Winning the War Against Future Jihad, The Coming Revolution, The Lost Spring, and of course, The Choice, which compares foreign policies of Trump and Obama, and uh, sorry, Obama, Trump, and Biden. And most recently... One of his best, best books yet, I would say, Iran and Imperialist Republic and U.S. Policy, now available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. As always, welcome to the show, Dr. Ferris. Thank you so much, Lisa, the new shining star of Middle East discussions and analysis. And you have been doing a great job uh, to inform the public, the American public, the international public on all these crises. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much. And coming from you, that's that's probably the, the biggest and best compliment I can get in this field. Uh, as I told Dr. Ferris, as we started the segment, this book is not, I just, I don't just take it out for our segments. It actually has been on my desk in my studio uh, since the last time we spoke. It's something that I refer to quite often. And I've always said it. I say it to your face. I say it behind your back. No one can break this down like you can. No one can connect the dots like you can on these very important topics. And today we're going to dive into something very important. I actually booked you uh, to talk about other things in the Middle East. Yeah. There's always a lot going on. But this news broke this week. Um, this and what I'm referring to and I'm going to educate the audience very quickly to bring them up to speed because I'm not sure that everybody has had a chance to uh, read articles. These are thousands of emails that mm. have come to a pinnacle expose revealing the actual inner workings of the Islamic Republic's lobby in Washington, D.C. This is not just one individual here, one individual there. This is not just NIAC having you know, a, a think tank here, a think tank there. This is actually the regime's foreign ministry creating a committee of experts and researchers that they then position to be in Washington, D.C. One of those individuals is actually currently working in the Pentagon. Her name is Ariane Tabatabai. We also have Ali Vaez and Dina Esfandiari. Their names were mentioned in this expose. Um, Dr. Ferris, I'm going to just talk about a few different things that they outline in this article, again, shared by Iran International and Semaphore, written by Jay Solomon, a good friend and a great inter uh, investigative journalist, uh, who talks about how these individuals not only had contact with Iran's ministry, they were actually being advised by them. Yeah. An individual working for the Pentagon asks the Iran ministry, asks Zarif at the time, mm -hmm. what she should do uh, when it comes to an op-ed, what she should do if she should accept an invitation to speak at a conference, and the list goes on. Tell us the, the, the significance of this and how this will that will will this change anything in in the conversation about how to deal with Iran's regime? Elisa, this should change everything in the strategic conversation about U.S. relationship with with this regime. Remember, you and I had a review and an assessment of the book back in December, 
And we both spoke about the fact that the Iran lobby, that the Iran regime funding the Iran lobby, had, that lobby has been able to penetrate very deep in the West in general, in the United States in particular, but not that deep. I mean, we are talking about the bureaucracy of the US government, regardless of who's in the White House and who's you know, in, uh, calling the shots. This is the deep bureaucracy. This is where decisions are prepared. This is, in the case of the Pentagon, this is the most important, actually, agency in the United States, our defense. So now, according to that report, uh, semaphore, there is the revelation about a coordination and collaboration between individuals who are hired by our government, hired by our government, and or on contract by our government, and or uh, like endorsed and validated by our government on the one hand, and individuals and experts and bureaucrats who are linked directly with the Iran regime foreign ministry and they have formed this joint think tank. That is, on the one hand, advising the Iranians on how to do politics in America, how to lobby in America, how to, how to push uh, some agencies and departments to be better uh, to serve the interests of the Iran uh, regime. And you mentioned emails going from one of these individuals, and you know a lot about it, to the foreign minister of Iran asking him, and that's really the, the opex mm -hmm. of, of this whole issue, uh, what can I do for you? Right. What can I, can I do to further your interest? Right. And on the other hand, these individuals are experts, meaning they, uh, the, the US government listens to them with regard to Iran. And we always, you and I and many in the field have been wondering, we know that there is an Iran uh, lobby, Iran regime lobby and Iran deal lobby. Everybody was going after Nayak. Nayak is just a little piece. Mm -hmm. That lobby is all over our bureaucracy. And I think this revelation from Semaphore is so important. It may be the beginning of discovering the tip of the iceberg, which is thawing now. You know what's crazy to me, um, Walid, is that during the time that these individuals either had a connection to or were working for Robert Malley, and if, for those who aren't familiar with Robert Malley, he is the Biden administration or was the Biden administration's special envoy for Iran. So he was entrusted with dealing with all matters Iran regime. He's the one who attended the talks in Vienna at the negotiating table to really beg Iran for that uh, new nuclear deal. Uh, obviously didn't work. And right now he's on unpaid leave because of what they believe he did with very sensitive um, uh, uh, documents, uh, which is being investigated. This is so much deeper than that. I think this is going to be yeah. a secondary investigation because this is so much worse than that. He knew at the time, based on, based on this expose, he knew that the individuals who were working for him or advising him had a connection to Iran's foreign ministry. Perhaps he even saw that as a benefit, as a blessing, as a bonus. Wow, look at this. They have a connection to the people we want to make friends with. But my question to you is, as somebody who has worked in Washington, D.C., has been an advisor to the White House, how do these people get security clearance? Uh, you, 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 you have preempted my actual answer. Yes. You know, we are very diligent. This country, this government is very diligent with regard to security clearances. If you have spoken 10 years ago, if you have spoken to somebody not in an enemy country, to an, an ally, if you have spoken to an official in France, in Saudi Arabia, in Israel, they're going to ask you questions. What did you speak about? Now you're, you're talking about an official within the U.S. government 
who have been coordinating with a country that most of its agencies are on U.S. terror list. I mean, there is no bigger case than the case. And that's only the beginning. We're going to probably discover more. Remember when we had the conversation months ago, uh, chapter seven, eight, and nine of my book were analyzing the depth and the width of the Iran lobby and the Iran deal lobby. So the question is, how come after all that vetting, I mean, how, how did they vet them, these individuals who are actively talking to the Iran regime, right? Uh, so that is going to be a big matter that Congress needs to address. And this is not going to be a small and very short thing. It's going to be it's going to be taking us for years of investigation of what happened. I mean, the, the Pentagon's reaction, which I thought was very, I mean, perhaps predictable and, and perhaps very much um, short-sighted, was that, uh-uh, we're okay with, with uh, this individual. Or her, her vetting was fine. She's fine. And we're happy that she's working for us. Wouldn't the Pentagon be alarmed by all of this? Wouldn't they at least take 24 hours to look into these allegations that are quite serious? Look, Lisa, you know Washington as much as I do, even if you live in Los Angeles, you know it well. First reaction is always, we don't know what we're going to say because they don't know the depth of what happened. They don't know. Nobody knows. Even you and I have been focusing on this. We could not imagine that it would be that obvious, that striking. Second, everything they're going to say now, the Congress is going to be asking them, what did you mean when you said that? So first reaction by Pentagon and other officials of the administration is to say, we don't know much. We don't think it's going to be that bad. But then when Congress and the committees are going to start asking about it, and when more information may come up, now that this has been revealed, many people who knew things are saying, ah, this is part of that whole process. So that's why I'm saying this is the tip of the iceberg. It's typical. And this is, it reminds me of when the Soviet Union started to change, a lot of information started to get out. Mm-hmm. And then everybody in Eastern Europe said, yeah, we worked with the Soviet Union. And we know what, what, the, what they were doing. I think this is a pivotal moment in U.S.-Iran uh, regime relationship. You know, this is, uh, is, is the, the, the group that they, um, they started is called the Iran uh, Experts Initiative. And it's not only to get individuals in, into the highest uh, echelons of, of Washington, D.C., although they were successful in doing so, they also were able to very, very uh, uh, successfully infiltrate the media. And of yeah. course, that's that's the narrative, right? So they started in 2014. What a perfect time, right, to get uh, President Obama in on the, and to sell to the American public why we need uh, the Iran nuclear deal. And as this expose outlines, how many different op-eds were written by these individuals and placed into major uh, media outlets. One of those uh, individuals actually is, is uh, Kaveh, Afrasiabi, which if, if you um, recall, he would go on television a lot as an expert, and mm-hmm. he is actually one of the five being released through the recent um, prisoner exchange with Iran, in which we also unfroze $6 billion just last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually was, was, was part of this group as well, writing op-eds, going on television. I mean, in your assessment, being, again, involved in government, being involved in media, how deep was this uh, network of experts? And will this now undo the narrative to the point where we can educate the American public on the foreign policies of President Obama and President Biden to now take a step back and lead us away from this dangerous path forward? Well, Lisa, these are 
terrific questions, very dangerous questions. Number one, with regard to how old it was. This is a very old network. I was the subject of harsh attacks by that network. I'm talking about the late 90s. I was a professor and making comments on Iran affairs, <laughs> even before 9-11 and since 9-11. And obviously when this became a massive campaign against me, I'm just one expert, there are dozens of experts. And they, this network started to target, to target people in the US government outside US government in the private sector who are trying to awaken the American people. It was under Bush and certainly the eight years of, uh, of Obama. Uh, suddenly when I was, well, was appointed by previous Republican nominee, Mitt Romney, as one of the senior national security advisors, that's a nightmare for them. An individual like myself who knows them, who know their ideology, their strategy, they kept a a uh, non-stop campaign against me that started with Mother Jones. Just give you one example of what they have been doing. They would single out individuals who would be dangerous for their penetration. We know penetration, you and I, when we see it, when we know about it. So they have had a sig significant systematic campaign to eliminate anybody who would get that information or that assessment to the US government. But the real work that this lobby has started to do was when a letter was sent by President Obama, former President Obama, to the Grand Ayatollah in June of 2009. They considered this. Now, whatever the president had in mind or he wanted to do, that's one thing. But they considered, that's the Iranian op operatives in America, that this is a green line. This is a signal that you could actually start working and start influencing, etc. And that has been a very dangerous trend because over the eight years of the Obama administration, who really wanted to have a, a deal uh, to, to be able to advance the interests of the United States, but who controlled that deal? Who controlled the making of that deal? Advisors, advisors who came from the Iran lobby. They may be Iranian Americans, they may be foreigners, but they could also be Americans who have been fooled by the arguments of, of that lobby. It was interrupted very lightly during the Trump campaign or the Trump time, the four years he was under the president, former president was under huge pressure and maybe even the former president and his administration didn't realize how wide that network was, especially how they erupted against his foreign policy, why and when, since he decided to get rid of the Iran deal. That was the signal. That was an intifada against that administration. I have never seen anything like that. And mm -hmm. at the center of it, you have the interests of the Iran deal. So it's wide, it's deep, and it was gonna take some time. It's gonna take more than one year or so to uh, bring awareness among the American public, which is the most important, and therefore among the members of Congress. Yeah, speaking of members of Congress, you segued perfectly. Um, we, we actually do this so well, harmonize so well. You perfectly always segue me into the next question. <laughs> um, I think people are concerned about where we are at this moment. Um, you know, it's, it, it's interesting because the, the Obama administration did this very well. And perhaps because he was such a great speaker, it, it flowed much more seamlessly or perhaps- An organizer, was, speaker and organizer, yes. Organized, yes. And he was different in, in many ways um, than President Biden, but the policies not so much. Now, what we are seeing in terms of the narrative uh, is that there, you know, the two sentences that that Biden had at the United Nations General Assembly about Iran is that we can't let them get a nuclear weapon. 
It wasn't about the people. It wasn't about Masa Amini movement. It wasn't about human rights, uh, uh, proxies. It wasn't about any of that. It was that they can't get a nuclear weapon. Now, during the time that Biden has been in office, they have shut 27 or more cameras, uh, surveillance cameras. They have denied IAEA inspectors from going in. We know that uranium is spinning, spinning, spinning 50 to 80 percent somewhere in there. Bad news, regardless of what the, the exact number is. So basically, they have allowed the problem to get worse. And now, before the end of Biden's term, it appears that they will come to save the day and whip up another JCPOA. And that's exactly what we're seeing, what Robert Malley did, the envoy, making promises to Iran's regime. We're seeing all the seeds that were planted along the way. I mean, we had very good reason to believe this was happening. And now in this expose, we know it was absolutely happening. It continues to happen because they have individuals in place to not only create the narrative, but to make the promises and then follow up on those promises. My question to you, how easily can the Biden administration, Biden himself, create another JCPOA, go behind uh, Congress's back, do this before his term is up? Well, first of all, I mean, many among us do believe that President Biden has some difficulties in managing many of these things. I mean, I've witnessed him when he was extremely sharp in the Senate. I mean, everybody can remember his speeches. He had certain policies we agreed to, we disagreed to. But at this point in time, I think within the administration, within the bureaucracy, there are um, more efficient individuals who are influencing the White House and preparing the policies and even the narrative for them. And the president has only to choose. So that's on the one hand, that's a different issue. But I don't buy when the administration in general, the president or others, tell us that we're not going to allow Iran to obtain the nuclear weapon. Why? Because jurisprudence, that's exactly what the administration, this administration has said about the Taliban. They said, we're not going to allow the Taliban to take over Afghanistan. Our speeches here when they were in the opposition to Trump and then even the first three to four months said, no, no, we're going to support the Afghan army. We're going to do this. And overnight in, in August, they allowed the Taliban to take over and then they stopped the debate about it. And then they said, oh, it's Trump's fault. No connection at all. My concern here, and that's a concern for the entire American people beyond the politics, is that they are telling us now we're not going to allow them to have the bomb. But we're going to have we're going to send them the money. We send them the money. We stop the war. In fact, what's going to happen is that Iran, the Iran regime, is getting those billions of dollars, the rest of which the batch of six or plus billion dollars. And at one point, what the Iranians will do, the Iranian regime, they will either buy, they will either you know create the conditions to have that weapon. They will test it, like India and Pakistan have tested it in 1999. I was a professor at the time, and that shocked me. Uh, they tested the nukes and said, now we are a nuclear power. You have to change your policy towards us. Now we are part of the club. Iran can do the same with a tactical nuke or with a larger nuke. With all that money that they have, they have already secured what they want to uh, acquire. And what will be the response if it's still the same administration here or an administration that would be their uh, expression? They will say, well, now this is the new reality. Let's deal with Iran. Let's now negotiate with Iran. That's my greatest concern. I can speak about this forever because I think it's important for the American public to be 
uh, educated about how not only that this is happening, but how it affects us here, how it affects our national yeah. security, how it affects our taxpayer dollars, how it affects our southern border, Latin America, their presence there. Uh, but I also want to shift gears to get your thoughts on the uh, situation with Saudi Arabia. Very, very yeah. situation with Saudi Arabia. We originally dis- decided that we're going to speak about this. Um, Dr. Ferris was um, the, the featured uh, expert in one of our pieces at the foreign desk that talks about um, renewing uh, relations between uh, Saudi Arabia and the United States. Just last week, we will um, link to that article as well. If you haven't had a chance to read it, it's very informative and thorough. Um, Dr. Ferris, my question to you is in the same week, we saw Saudi sending a a representative to Mahmoud Abbas to the Palestinian uh, territories doubling down on uh, their support for a Palestinian state, saying East Jerusalem will be the capital. We support you. Uh, no human rights abuses against Palestinians. You guys are great. At the same time, the exact same time, Israel sends a uh, foreign minister. It was the tour- tourism minister. Um, why not start with tourism uh, to Saudi Arabia? That is the first visit by an Israeli official to Saudi Arabia. What's going on here? Is Saudi Arabia <laughs> double dipping? Uh, And again, this comes right months after China brokered a deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran's regime, sworn enemies for 40 years. What's your take? Another amazing topic. So let's try to uh, look into it and then try to analyze analyze it the the best we can. What was new in the two actions that took place that you just mentioned? Saudi Arabia minister goes to the West Bank meet with the head of the PA, which they have done many, many, many times or an Israeli minister goes to Saudi Arabia and start talking about future collaboration. Obviously the second. Uh, let, me, let me take you with me to the inside of the, the kingdom or inside of the lead, leadership position. Mohammed bin Salman, the young uh, crown prince is committed completely for, and that's the most important to me, before even, before even a treaty with Israel is to change the radical movement inside Saudi Arabia, because if he doesn't do it, then nothing was going to happen. And actually, if Saudi Arabia does not defeat the Salafi and the neo-Wahhabi and the Muslim Brotherhood, who have been in control of a lot of sectors inside uh, Saudi Arabia, and they were behind a lot of radicalization around the world. And it's not just my analysis. I had hours of conversations with Saudi ministers as of 2016, 17, and so on and so forth. So the real battle in Saudi Arabia that we need to keep an eye on was and is Mohammed bin Salman reforms. Once he reformed the kingdom, once he defeat, utterly defeat the forces of jihadism and and Islamism, then everything else is gonna go in that direction. Then the peace process with Israel will be very normal. Actually, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, during that interview, the famous interview he had on Fox, which was broadcast all over the world, said clearly, we are talking with the Israelis. So that's different from the old Saudi Arabia that used to say, we're not gonna even talk before the Palestinian state. This is going. Now, we are talking with the Israelis. We need some concessions on some matters related to the Palestinian. That's because of the pressure of the, uh, of the Muslim world. But he said, at the end of the day, any, any process between us and the Israelis is gonna end up with a normalization, is gonna end up with a mutual recognition. Now. Problem is not in Saudi Arabia or in Israel. The problem is in Washington, D.C. Because the administration, the last three years and the eight years of uh, the Obama administration, were really putting a lot of pressure 
a lot of pressure on Saudi Arabia and on MBS in particular. Even during the Trump administration, I remember they were putting pressure, that's the Congress, last two years of the Congress, and the media, Washington Post, New York Times, blasting MBS, so on and so forth, because, because MBS was getting rid of two forces. One is containing the Iranians on the one hand, but more importantly, the Muslim Brotherhood on the inside mm-hmm. of, the, uh, of the kingdom. So I believe, if you ask me, I believe, let the Saudis do whatever they want in talking with the Palestinians. In my view, what they said to, to uh, Mahmoud Abbas is more important. They said, we're gonna get you concessions, but you're gonna get rid of Hamas. That's the bottom line. Because there is no peace if Hamas is empowered, not just in Gaza, but also in parts of the West Bank. Okay, but I agree with everything you said. Of course I do, because we always agree on most things. I should say most things. Most elephant things. in the room, elephant in the room that doesn't fit the puzzle here Nothing has truly changed in the region. For 40 years, Saudi and Iran has been at each other's throats, creating proxies, fighting each other in different ways, and they continue to. Why did Saudi Arabia engage with Iran in the, in the deal that China brokered? That goes completely, that was the detour, right? Everything you're saying is on track. They were eventually working towards a normalization deal with Israel. They were moving closer to the United States because who cares what Biden says? He's senile, he's gonna move on, right? Because that true uh, foreign policy it brings us closer to Saudi because of the Abraham Accords and it always will. That's the natural relationship, right? So Obama and and Biden being a blip in the map of foreign policy because they love Iran's regime and the Mullahs. But why did Saudi agree to such a deal with Iran? That is an excellent question. Uh, and, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to respond to the American public because I did a lot of op-eds in, in Arabic and on, on Al-Arabiya and all that. So here's, here's the deal. Had there been a second Trump administration, let's start with our own politics. Mm-hmm. After the 2017 super summit in Riyadh, right? President Trump went with his cabinet and addressed 50 or 51 Arab and Muslim leaders. He called on the Saudis and on the rest of the Arab Muslim world to uh, drive the jihadists and the Iranian and Hezbollah out Iranian regime out of the, of the region. That was the peak. Of, of that, and I spoke with many Saudis, Emiratis, and even Israelis and, and others, and they believed that that moment was a crush between the past and the future. The energy was there, the vibe was there. My projection was, would have been, that in the second Trump administration, Saudi leadership and the Israelis, this government at least, would have signed an agreement, no problem. Why? Because the Saudis felt they had an umbrella, and that umbrella was the United States because it's a very serious matter if there is a confrontation in the region. How do you confront the Iran regime, which is backed by Russia and by China, and has the capacity of destroying the Gulf with their missiles? How? By having an alliance between the United States and whomever coalition of the willing in in Europe, the Arab coalition with all the friends of the Saudis and the Emiratis, and Israel. And of course, the Iranian opposition. I I wrote many pieces saying the Iran opposition today is like de Gaulle during World War II. You know, it has its capacity, capacity, and it's the only one that can help both Arabs, Israelis, and Americans at the end of the day to make the change. What happened was a change, a sudden change, but in our policy. The first month, the first few weeks after the Biden administration took over, what did they do? They delisted the Houthi organization, which is a terrorist organization, was on our US list of uh, terrorist organizations in Yemen. So we, we, we basically, Washington told the leadership of Saudi Arabia, 
we're not going to help you against the Houthis. And the Houthis are at 150 miles from Mecca and 200 miles from Medina. And they were bombarding Saudi Arabia with missiles, with ballistic missiles, and even the part of, uh, of the UAE and, of course, uh, Yemen. So that started to change the view of the Saudis. We don't have the support of the United States. Second pressure came by this administration to the Saudis, on the Saudis, and also their friends in, in, uh, in Congress, is to stop the war in Yemen, start talking to the Yemenis, uh, have a recognition of that role, engage in the Iran deal. So the Israelis at the time didn't have the tools. Actually, the Biden administration was even pressuring the Israelis at the same time, at the same time. So now the Saudis, their analysis was, okay, we can't do that super coalition to isolate Iran, it will cost. We don't know what the Biden administration is going to do. They saw what happened in Afghanistan, and that was crucial. When they saw that the US that trained and funded the army of Afghanistan overnight gave the power to the Taliban, mm, wait a minute, there is something not right here. And then came the Ukraine crisis. The Ukraine crisis, basically, uh, there was a crisis in oil price and everything. The Biden administration went to the Saudis and told them that was in Jeddah in 2002. They told them, we need you to control the price, produce more. Saudis said, fine, we will help you. And then the Saudis told the Biden administration, but you are talking to the Iranians. You are sending them money. You are sending money to our enemies and then at the same time asking us to help you. Right. No answer came. And the conclusion was that the Saudis said, we need a respite. We need a ceasefire. We need to calm down this, the issue. We're not going with the Iranians. We're not going to go against the Abraham Accord. They're still very committed, but we cannot do it alone before there is a change in foreign policy here. That's the, the logic. Now, I am very I was very concerned when they signed with the uh, with the Iranian regime, but since we don't have a policy on which upon which the Iranian and the Israelis and the and the Saudis can come together and create an alliance, I think they are waiting for the next presidential. Aren't we all? Uh, before I let you go, <laughs> before I let you go, though, um, I want to I want to end on a, on, a, on a, a hypothetical, but I do want to get your take on this. I think a lot of people are waiting to see if Saudi Arabia and Israel do normalize relations and and kind of can can work together more openly on on the world stage. Let's say you know the next administration. There's no change in Iran policy. God forbid. God forbid. Yeah, yeah. But let's say there is no no change in positioning. Would there be a scenario in which Saudi Arabia and Israel can work together to diminish the Iran regime issue? There was an incident yesterday, as a matter of fact, which was the Houthi, the allies of the Iranians, bombarded out of nowhere since the first time since the. Uh, the signing of the normalization agreement between Saudi and Iran, killing uh, Bahraini soldiers who were part of the Arab coalition on the borders of Yemen. I was on Arab TV this morning. Saudis are not happy at all. They start to smell that the Iranian position is not that real. So let me say two points quickly since we are getting to the end here. Number one, and that's very important, this leadership in Saudi Arabia is gonna start to do things with Israel things with Israel. There will be many normalizations right and left. You know how they started to do it before getting to the Abraham Accord, okay. because the, the young leaders of Saudi Arabia, not just the, the Emir, the crown prince, but people around them, 48,000 Saudis were, you know, graduated from the United States. And if you look at the 
social media, they want to drive towards peace and the West and, and et cetera. But they are very careful. They're going to start the normalization. MBS himself said, our people are talking with the Israelis. And look, look what the Israelis are saying. That's the most important one. They're saying, fine, we're going to keep going to Saudi Arabia. We're going to send our delegation. It's going to be economics first. It's going to be youth. The same thing they've done with the UAE. So a kind of a normalization is going to start. The timing of a full-fledged alliance that would reshift Saudi and the Arab coalition with Israel, that's left to both sides, to the Israelis and the Arabs and the Arab coalition. Things to look forward to are on the horizon in the Middle East. So you, you give Beyond us hope. The horizon, yes. <laughs> and, I, and I like to end on that note. There is hope. And when you look at the people of the Middle East, as many of your books talk about the people and their movements, yeah. that's what gives us hope. I encourage you all to pick this up because if this conversation is intriguing to you, it's just tip of the iceberg. This guy is filled with so much wisdom, so much knowledge, and truly the only one who can unpack these very difficult topics the way that he does. Dr. Ferris, an honor, a pleasure to call you a friend, to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time. For those of you who would like to subscribe to our weekly podcast, go to youtube.com slash Lisa Daftari to sign up for our daily top 10 email to stay on top of all things foreign policy news. Go to foreigndesknews.com and you can sign up there. See you all next week.